This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree-hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hey, 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 welcome to episode 129, can you believe it, of the Sustainable-ish podcast, where this week I'm chatting to Ben and Petra, who are both trustees of Zero Carbon Guildford, which is one of a growing number of climate hubs that are starting up all over the UK. Now, Zero has an amazing community space in the centre of Guildford, where they have a zero waste shop and a vegan cafe. And from there, they also host a brilliant array of projects like a baby clothes library, a climate cinema and a community fridge, to name just a few. And super importantly, what they're doing there is they're working to bring local community groups together around a shared goal of carbon neutrality by 2030 by developing what they call a community led climate action plan. This is yet another super inspiring episode, and I have my sneaking suspicions that many of you listening to this will be thinking, yes, I want one of those where I live. So I really tried to ask as many questions as possible about the logistics of getting something like this off the ground. And for any of you who are interested in finding out more about how to do just that, Zero Carbon Guildford are running an event on the 10th of February, both in person and live streamed for anyone who isn't local. And that's being run in conjunction with the Surrey Climate Commission. And they're sharing how they have created quite a few of these climate hubs in Surrey, alongside tips for how you can do the same where you live. So I will pop a link to that in the show notes, which you can find at www.asustainablelife.co.uk forward slash podcast. Now, it goes without saying that I love, love, love what these guys are doing, and I hope you're as inspired as I am. And wouldn't it be amazing to think that maybe someone listening to this podcast now has the spark of an idea for creating something similar where they live? Do get in touch and let me know if that's you. So enjoy this episode, and as ever, please do leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. This is how we get more ears on the podcast and more people hearing about brilliant projects like Zero Carbon Guildford and hopefully wanting to replicate them themselves. Enjoy. Hello, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. And we've got two of you here today, which is really exciting. And you're both in the in in the same space on the same screen, which kind of sometimes makes it a bit easier if um, like you end up with people talking over each other and things. Um, do you want to kick off by introducing yourself, Ben? Do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. My name is Ben. I am a trustee and chair of Zero Carbon Guildford, uh, which is a local charity set up in Guildford to try and help build a community-led climate action plan. 
Wow, there's so much out of that to dive into. And Petra, how about you? I'm Petra and I'm a trustee of Zero Carbon Guildford. And I've also been part of Youth Strike for Climate, which has been a youth-led movement um, to uh, get uh, governments and world leaders to take more action because it's currently disastrous, you know, the rate that, we, yeah. you know, what they're doing. It's awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's me. Amazing. Right. I don't know if I first saw you guys on Twitter or where I saw you, but I'm kind of blown away by what you're doing and, and what you're doing there in Guildford. So I don't know, it's it's probably not a very easy thing to succinctly describe, but um, Zero Carbon Guildford, I mean, you've got an amazing space because there's lots there's quite a lot of sort of you know zero carbon groups or transition groups or whatever around the country and um but you've managed to create an amazing space ben tell us a little bit about zero carbon guildford and how it started yeah so um well we kind of started right at the start of lockdown when obviously um various local groups were couldn't really do anything couldn't meet and so we started chatting to each other about how we might be more collaborative and more efficient in what we were doing Mm. stop working in silos be able to share knowledge, experience, maybe funding bids, things like that. And obviously, as we started chatting, uh, like a lot of groups, sort of pipe dream is to have a bit of a space somewhere. Um, and so we landed on this model, um, uh, collaborating, well, not collaborating, but getting some advice from uh, Climate Emergency Centre Network, which is a loose um, network of autonomous groups looking at trying to open spaces focused on tackling the climate and biodiversity crisis. Um, and so they were really helpful in getting some things off the ground and they um, had people who would uh, open community centres for you know the last thirty years or so, and um, so that was a really good um, source of information. And we sort of took some of that, um, got a load of groups together, and decided look, we want to try and open a space. It took us a long time to get a building, and so while we were looking for a building, we spent a lot of time setting up as a charity, uh, really strengthening the network, um, not just in the groups involved, but really reaching out getting our governance sorted and trying to start making a bit of noise about what we were trying to do so that when we did get our hands on a building we were sort of hitting the ground running as it Mm. were I suppose because um it's quite a lot to do we're all volunteers and we're entirely community-led so nobody is paid um so it's been a lot to do with just volunteers and thankfully we've had a lot of people have been able to contribute a lot of time um it's still definitely a work in progress what we've got with zero as the building but um it's community led. So I think it will kind of always be a work in progress because we'll be responding to what the community is asking us to focus on. So we're sort of all right with it being like that. Amazing. Um, Petra, can you describe the space to us then? Because I've seen pictures on um, Twitter and on your social media and things, but can you try and um, paint a picture of it for us? Uh, Yeah. So it's an old New Lake building, which is really cool. So it's a nice big space um and is it in a shopping center or on a high street or no it's on um Friary street in guildford and it's not in a shopping center it's like a separate shop mm-hmm. and we have a, a zero waste food shop um which is really cool we also have a vegan cafe and we have um displays of how to like green your home and a bit about activism a bit about biodiversity we also have um a terra cycle uh, unit um to recycle things like crisp packets mm. and um, other packages that aren't usually recycled um it's very bright and colorful um and we also have an interactive wall um which ben's told everyone we have to call it a magic wall which is ridiculous <laughs> and you know, it's all about you know reducing your own uh impact your own uh carbon impact through eating less meat and um you know lots of other things like that so yeah i mean i guess that's the space in a nutshell 
And I was having a, a look around the website before coming to chat to you guys. And there's so many different projects that you're running and so many different events and things. Again, Ben, um, I'm really aware Ben's, Ben's trying to eat his lunch at the same time. So I'm trying not to come to him when he's mid-mouthful. But um, can you give us an idea, Ben, of some of the, the projects that you're working on? Uh, yeah, sure. It's, it's pudding, actually. It's not my, my actual <laughs> lunch. Um, it's homemade pecan pie. Wow. Now we all want some pecan pie. So, uh, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so I mean, the way that we sort of have gone about what we what projects we get involved here for, to sort of describe what we're doing, the, the space is used primarily as um, education and engagement for the wider community, because obviously, as most people in environmental and social stuff know, it's really hard to reach past your bubble, past mm. the usual suspects. And um, when you look at um, climate stuff, we've got these surveys saying 85 percent of people are concerned about um, climate breakdown. 52 percent are very concerned. But the gulf to the number of people who are actually acting appropriately to the scale of the threat is massive. Mm. And when you dig into this, um, we, we sort of thought there was two main reasons that was. And number one is, is confusion. People don't really know where, where to start. There's loads of uh, misinformation out there, largely generated by you know vested interests, trying to maintain the status quo and a media that supports mm. that. And the second reason um, being that people are really overwhelmed. The scale of the climate crisis is so mm. massive. Obviously, it stirs up a lot of feelings of anxiety, anger, grief, depression. And so people get really overwhelmed by those negative emotions and can't really can't really do a lot. They turn away from it or they think someone else is going to come along and save us. And obviously, that's not going to happen. And so we want to try and offer ways that people can process those emotions to actually spur themselves into action instead of waiting for, you know, someone to just come and mm. fix it all effectively. So the way that we decided to take things on was um, our overarching strategy for Zero is that it's educa education and engagement coupled with practical, ideally local solutions that people can help to tackle these global crises alongside mental health and well-being support to process those overwhelming emotions. So that's the sort of overarching remit of how these projects fit in. And some of the projects that we got involved uh, were already existing locally and perhaps not that well known or were maybe one person running stuff. And so we've tried to build a team of volunteers around it and to scale up the, the level of impact that it can have once the whole borough starts getting involved in them. So that's things like the local TerraCycle person was one person operating mm. out of her shed. So we're trying to offer support there. Uh, there's a Surrey Hills baby clothes library that we have here, which offers uh, boxes of clothes um, for a £20 donation, which you get back at the end. And it helps keep um, you keep upgrading every six mm. months, basically, to new size clothes. Uh, we've teamed up with the Guildford Library to help their library of things try and expand and um, promote that. So some of those things existed already and maybe weren't that well known about. So we kind of in that way wanted to be a one-stop shop. And in other things, uh, like the famed Magic Wall Petra talks about, we've sort of come <laughs> up with off our own back. So with the wall, what we've done is we've teamed up with a charity called The Jump. And we've got their official charity launch here on the 5th of March, along with a load of Arab research that this is based on. So... Um, the chap that started the charity worked at uh, C40, the climate policy writing organization. And he spent a year looking at what communities could do to, re to reduce their impact. Um, and obviously, a lot of climate messaging is, is pretty overwhelming, pretty disempowering, really. Mm. And the great thing about the jump is that it says that there's about the, the research, this solid research out of C40 in Arab shows that actually there's about 30% of an area's emissions you can tackle with action right now. And so we really liked that. It was more empowering than most messaging. And it, we, well, the way we saw this was it's broken down into six shifts. So we figured this was a really simple way to build local solutions into this and help people start looking at this massive global scale problem in more bite-sized chunks that they can actually manage. So we 
built this prototype alongside the jump, which we made out of my neighbor's floorboards and some ply jointed together, painted the back of it with magnetic paint and sensors. And so now it's this touchscreen wall that expands into each of the shifts and give you local solutions wow. in easy steps that people who don't know where to start can start going and do things. So like, like Petra says, the, there's a plant-based section on it. That shows you uh, the vegan market when it's on a couple of uh, local vegan cafes. Uh, there's one about uh, fashion and dress. So we have we start, try and get things, uh, events that team up with that. So we have a kilo sale here, for example, teaming up with a company that do that to reduce the impact. And the first one of those, we um, the company sold 2,100 items of clothing that we wow. did. So that's a massive difference compared to 2,100 items being sold locally in CO2 produced and water when people are buying stuff secondhand. So we're trying to really put on a, a diverse range of things within that scope. Um, and especially reach out to people who wouldn't normally be involved in in this sort of thing to help them relate to some of it, see people they identify with and realise that, you know, it's, it's essential work for everybody to get involved in really now. Yeah, and I think that's a real, um, that's so important that everybody thinks that this is something for them because I think quite often with, um, you know, air quotes, green or sustainable projects, there's so many, and, and, and with, you know, the whole thing, there's so many stereotypes and there'll be a lot of, you know, say, uh, I don't know, your typical, this is so stereotypical, but like your white middle class, slightly older person will be like, oh, that's for that's for those hippie types over there. And that's not really for me. Whereas these are people actually who've probably got reasonably high emissions and could be doing really stuff, but they don't um, associate or don't kind of identify, as you said, um, with that. Are, are you sort of starting to find that this is breaking down some of those barriers? I don't know who wants to who wants to answer that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think so to a certain extent. I mean, obviously, we've only we only lo- uh, launched less than eight weeks ago, mm. so it's still quite early days. But as I say, we did spend a lot of time in the background. Obviously, to do to reach past the climate bubble, as it were, you mm. do need that diverse range of things so that people can see other people like them. Obviously, you mentioned sort of middle class white, uh, the white part of the climate movement that is largely you know, a, a thing thrown at the um, climate movement a mm, lot of the mm. time. And we live in Guildford, so obviously that's not yes. really helping that, that scenario particularly. Um, but Guildford is a really wealthy borough, one of the wealthiest outside London, and yet we still have two areas in the top decile of food poverty and two in the fourth. So mm. it's a bit of a snapshot of some of the program, uh, some of the problems nationally. Um, and so what we really want to do as well is to offer ways for the parts of the community that do typically have obstacles to getting involved in climate action or environmentalism to be able to do some of that. So one thing we want to do, for example, is start doing mobile workshops on things like um, community growing. And we've got a couple of vertical farming towers that um, we got with funding from Transition Network. Thank you, Transition Network. Um, bike repair workshops. Um, we've got a community fridge about to launch next week. Um, so some of these things that we want to take out into the um, wider community and the places where, you know, travel or transport free time, all that side of things are obstacles. We can actually go into those parts of the community and not have to rely on them coming mm. to us or what have you and to try and start interacting in some ways that we can um, engage people in things that will help to empower them to do stuff that help build resilience, especially in you know lower income parts of the community mm. where they are likely to be the most threatened. Um, obviously, putting um, those parts of the community at the very heart of a climate action plan is absolutely essential. And, you know, protect our most vulnerable family members, residents, neighbours or what have you. Because unless it's fair, you're just not going to get the yeah. community buy-in to do it. And there is evidence that shows people will make sacrifices as long as they know the plan is fair. Mm-hmm. As soon as you get away from that, you're already, you're off to a losing start, really. So I think it's a real a real challenge. Obviously, if, we, if anyone knew how to solve it, we'd probably all be yes. doing it. 
But I think one of the advantages really of this sort of project that we're doing here with Climate Hub springing up across the country is that it doesn't mean that we're all just trying one thing, one strategy, and then failing and going back to the drawing board. We can all try different things and learn from each other's successes Mm. and failures. And we can write some of the strategies off and then look at what has been working and then all try and build on that. So I think as a collaboration between different communities, it helps us progress a lot faster to to genuinely bring in all demographics right across the political spectrum as well and help building that, you know, genuinely democratic plan of how to move forward. Yeah. It totally feels like we need to have one of these on every high street, basically, don't we? In every in every town, in every city. But I guess that and there'll be lots of people listening who are like me and thinking, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. And, you know, um, would love to have something like that happening uh, where I live. How I guess the big question is, how, how have you funded it? Um, so we, we've had a variety of funding methods. So as I mentioned, we got um, funding for the vertical farming towers via Transition Network. Mm. The fridge funding came via co-op. And then we've had a couple of um, community groups chip in some cash. So, for example, Guildford Environmental Forum, which is an environmental group locally, they've given us some funding. Campaign to Protect Royal England gave us a bit of funding. Oh, wow. Unison gave us a bit of funding this week. Um, so some local groups. It, it was quite inspiring. There's a lot of community is um, chipping into it, which for us is is a really yeah. positive sight. It makes us feel like there's a lot of support. Um, we launched a crowdfunder, which we had a target of £10,000 for. We got match funding from a very generous uh, individual. And because we're a charity, we get gift aid as well. Um, so that 10 grand turned to 25 grand. And amazingly, we hit that 10 grand target in three weeks. Wow. Um, so we were pretty bowled over by that. So it shows there is a lot of support. Obviously, one thing we are quite keen to highlight to people is that we're in the southeast of England. There's a lot of people with more disposable income mm. and more free time. So it's not you know, it's we, we've tried to we've tried to lay out what can be done with people, you know, coming together as a mm. community. But that doesn't mean that every community has the free time or cash to get some of this off the ground. But I think a big part of what we did was plan for what would happen if we never got a building. And the mm. main part about that is building community cohesion so that we t- can develop some resilience and can start thinking about ways that we can adapt to a changing planet. So even if you can't get to the point of that, I think the collaboration across a network is is really important. The building definitely helps. But I think, yeah, it's it's ways of looking, right, if we'd never got any funding, h- how would we go about doing something similar and mm. building an action plan? Um, and there are communities looking at doing that without the building. Um, we're we're um, having an event with Surrey Climate Commission in uh, February, uh, which will be um, uh, hopefully live streaming as well which will be looking at how communities can get this off the ground and where councils should be supporting. And I think a lot of council plans don't necessarily focus on uh, waste, consumerism, scope three stuff, because it's kind of out of their control. And we all know that people don't like to be told how to live. And so as soon as you, as soon as councils or governments start saying some of that stuff, people get their backs up. Whereas if you build it together as a community, you're way more likely to generate buy-in. And that's pretty critical because for us, for example, Guildford Borough Council control only have direct control only over about 1% of the borough's emissions. Mm. And when you add in transport with the county council, it goes up to about 30%. That leaves a huge chunk of emissions that have to be generated through things like reducing consumerism, reducing waste. And so I think it's, it's pretty important that Councils do play a big role and potentially start giving funding to those areas that they can't reach. Um, mm. But also people try and figure out ways to drive behavioural change locally, which doesn't necessarily cost a lot of money. It can often save you money in some ways and start figuring out different ways. That's why I say if the more hubs like this that spring up and the more different strategies that are being tried, hopefully the quicker it is until we find ways that actually work in doing some of this. Yeah. And that point about the council is really interesting because 
you know, I'm sure that there are lots of people and, you know, saying, well, the council ought to be doing this or the government ought to be doing this. And why aren't they funding these things? But I think there, there, there is a certain kind of pushback, as you say, from being told what to do by the council, isn't there? That, that people will automatically be like, oh, they can't tell me what to do. But as and I guess that's the importance of this as being a community led thing, that it's it's peer to peer kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think also one thing that I'm sure probably most people listening will share the frustration on is that, you know, councils for all their good intentions and for all the councillors and officers that do care about doing stuff, they move incredibly slowly. And yeah. so I think there's, yeah, I think there's, um, uh, Petra's nodding furiously. Yeah. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of people who, who, especially with climate stuff, they realise the urgency of what needs doing. And it's not a right to meet once and then say, right, we'll have another meeting in, in three, three months time yes. or what have you. People just want to get on and do stuff. And I think with this sort of thing, you definitely shouldn't let, you know, perfection be the enemy yes. of actually moving stuff forward. So what's great about this is when you start building an alliance of um, groups coming together, a lot of environmental action, often you get loads of people chipping in at meetings and then the work falls on a small number yes, of people. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas because obviously this was an alliance of lots of groups, we had tons of activity in, mm. in all corners of the group. So it feels like a lot of momentum starts building around stuff quite quickly and things move forward. So I think people always seem quite you know, sort of over, like a bit shocked by how quickly things move forward. But actually, when you've got a motivated group of people mm. um, that will just drag things along by the scruff of the neck, hopefully we can start dragging government along at that pace as well. So, you know, we, we can't just wait for them to do it. And there's a lot of things the government should be doing that shouldn't be left to us. But if they're not going to do it, then what we're mm. going to do, just sit around and do nothing. So, yeah, it's, it's that choice, isn't it? Either wait yeah. for someone to do something or get things started yourself and set the example. Have the council been broadly supportive or have they not had to sort of be involved in any way, shape or form? Yeah, no, they've been pretty supportive. Um, we got, um, so from our um, Guildford reps on the county council, they get uh, some members funds. So we had six uh, councillors chip in some members funds to help us get the building set up. Um, yeah. We had a guy set up as council liaison. So instead of having to go through different portfolio holders, mm. he found, figured out a load of stuff for us. Um, and we got a re- one of our, um, our council is quite interesting, actually, because we had a residence um, sort of flat pack style group set up um, a while ago. And they actually sort of do a power share with the Lib Dems now. So they've oh, actually okay. got a pretty good working relationship. And I think it's kind of, it's in a way, there's quite a good set of unique factors around here, which are sort of coming together. So we've got, you know, a, a council that's trying to do things. We've got Uni of Surrey here, which has a lot of yes. really good academia come out of it. Tim Jackson and Cusp are based up there. We're looking at sort of post-growth economics. We've got a pretty good activism base, Petra um, and the youth strikers on the global strike in September 2019, was yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, got a thousand people out on Guildford High Street, wow. which is yeah. amazing, actually. Yeah. Shows that actually a lot of people really do care and really do want to make a difference but often there isn't the like uh, infrastructure there to do it you know with the so picking up on that picture with the with the young people and the the climate strike and things um you know I've spoken to um I'm older than you guys and I've got sort of kids that are starting secondary school and things like that and a lot of people saying well you know the kids are really keen to to go on the climate strike but I'm still nagging them to turn the lights off or to put the recycling in the white bins and that kind of thing and I think that as you say and I, and I think it's, it's not just for young people it's for everybody there's there's this awareness and this desire for something to be done, but maybe there's still a bit of a disconnection between like something needs to be done. How can I be part of this? You know, and, and that the the demonstrating the activism really comes into that and is facilitated by the, the strikes happening and things like that. But we, I don't know. I feel like then it's a bit of dot joining maybe that needs to be done to help everybody to to take some simple actions. 
Well, I mean, I think um, the thing with activism and the thing with you track for climate and climate change is that obviously it's so terrifying that, yes, I mean, it is it is bad if someone doesn't turn off a light. But I think also it's such a massive problem that turning off one yes. light, I mean, it doesn't. I, I mean, obviously it's important, but it's, you know, it doesn't really make that much yeah, of yeah, a massive yeah. difference. And I think when you look at the scale of the problem and the anxiety young people feel, um, I think going on a climate strike is like the only logical thing to do, really, mm. isn't it? I mean, I read this thing once and it was like, imagine if Greta Thunberg had not done a school yes. strike and had actually decided to just go vegan herself mm. and like, like make her own individual changes. And actually that would have made no impact. Obviously it would have made an impact, a very small impact, but it would not have made nearly as big as impact as it has mm. her doing all the school strikes. So I think that there, I mean, I think there potentially is a disconnect, but I don't, and I, I also think, you know, when you look at it, it's like one person. I think young people really need governments to do stuff and the government are like awful at doing things and, um, you know, world leaders. And I think if they're not doing it as well, you think, well, why should I? Yeah. Especially um, younger kids would think that if you're trying to look at a role model and they're not doing anything, you think, well, why should I do it, you know? Yeah, definitely. And so have you had, um, you know, is, is this something that you've liaised with local schools with and things like that as well? Or is that something that you may be thinking about for the future? Um, yeah, when we first did it, we did have a lot of like uh, connections with schools. I think uh, a lot of uh, my school was uh, always quite supportive of it. I think um, so a lot of schools weren't. Um, but I think it was also about not listening to that, to be honest, because when it's a cri- when it's a, a bigger crisis, as mm. it is, when you look at the scale of it, you think, oh, God, like if my teacher doesn't let me, then I, don't, I shouldn't worry about that. So I think, yeah, we we did have a lot of um, contacts with schools, which has actually been really cool for Zero because we did a mock cop in um, November. Amazing. And, and that was really cool. And that was like hosted by Zero. We did it at the council chambers and that every school was a country and we had um, like talks and we had to talk, like give a statement and talk about if you were that country, what you would do. Mm. So our school were Australia, which obviously are horrendous on on climate. So yeah. we um, gave facts and then also about like what the country's doing and what we would do. Um, and yeah, that was a really great event. I think it got a lot of people engaged mm. with lots of different backgrounds um, across Guildford, which was really good. So um, yeah, we've re- we have connected with the schools a lot with Zero, and I think that that's a really crucial thing to be doing. Yeah, uh, and we finished that, didn't we? We finished Mock Cop with um, the third section of it was about what could be done locally. So I think what's quite important is that we're trying to bring back a lot of this to to the sort of local community because Mm. that is a good way to reach out across demographics and political allegiances because ultimately everybody cares about their community their neighbors the town that they live in um and they they, you know some towns are going to be worse affected than others but i think we've had donut economics come down and they did their first ever in-person workshop in guildford which is pretty good um during the great big green week that we organized and that was all that we focused all that on what could be done locally so what's what we're trying to use some of these events for is to identify what people see the biggest issues here environmentally mm. and what the popular ways to try and solve some of them are and then that can obviously be used as part of the plan to say these are popular ways to cut down yes. emissions locally so this is what's you know this is contributing to where we can generate the most community buying because we know that these are popular solutions yeah so um yeah i think as far you know young people are going to be the most affected by this so the more input that we can get from them through engagement the better really because it's it's so disempowering for them a lot of the well, time I, mean, and also just add on to that, I think a lot of the media think that all young people are totally engaged and actually it's such a small percentage yeah. i mean the amount of young people who aren't engaged due to like a product of the education system and a product of just the system in which we live 
like most people actually aren't engaged and you know don't know about it mm. um so i think that's a really important thing to remember that actually it's a very small number of young people who do care about it but and just look at the impact that that small number of young people have had and then if we can engage yeah, you know 10 percent, 20 percent, 50 percent that'd be absolutely phenomenal wouldn't it so you talked a little bit about your sort of plan for what you what you might have been able to do had you not had a had a property. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Because that might be helpful for people who are, like I said, wanting to get something off the ground, but thinking, well, oh, you know, that, that oh, God, we really need a property and that being a really sticking point for people. Yeah, well, I think obviously it sort of depends on what, what your goals are and mm. what you're trying to what you're trying to build locally. So obviously a lot of a lot of councils and towns are at different stages some places are notably more green than others um, already. Um, so, so, for example, Brighton, we've got some um, friends down in Brighton that have been looking to get something similar off the ground. And actually, Guildford not having a lot of the stuff that was that is happening in zero was in zero was kind of a benefit because it was an, it was quite obvious what our mm. place in the community was. Whereas in a in a more sort of already greener place like Brighton, a lot of that stuff already exists. So then it's kind of tricky to figure out exactly what your what your role is without just mm. becoming another meeting place, which yes. kind of feels like a lot of effort for just being a meeting hall or what have you. So it's really important to figure out what the what the main benefit of you having this sort of project mm. in the community is. And that largely depends on where you're already at and where you want to go. And obviously the key here, as as we've touched on a few times, is to get that community input to try and figure out what people see as the main problems locally, what the popular solutions are to deal with them and what your place in, in the wider world is. And actually I think the the donut economics approach is really good to this because that's how they frame a lot of this through um, a workshop called that they call four lenses. If you look on, um, so if you go on donut economics action lab, um, they have some great resources on there that sort of break stuff down and their, their facilitators are great there. They make economics really fun and engaging, um, which is obviously probably a bit of a challenge I would imagine (laughs) for most of us. Um, But it was honestly unanimously amazing feedback. And that was largely, I think, thanks to Rob and the way he facilitated it when he came down here. But it is, yeah, it's really engaging. Um, and so I think it's a good way to get people involved in this sort of thing, because ultimately we can look at all these social and environmental problems and think, oh, well, you know, that's the cause of that. And that's the cause of that. But ultimately, it all comes back down to two, two underlying factors. And one of those is our complete loss of connection to nature, which mm. you know makes us ignore our consumerism lifestyles, the impact it has on. Uh, wilderness habitats communities in the global south and all that side of things and the other one is a really destructive economic system that uses you know growth as a Mm. metric above all else regardless of regardless of the consequences so i think once you can help a community start identifying that everything comes back down to those two things it's a lot easier to focus on how we start moving forward so i think if you're going to go down an approach of not having a building um and don't get me wrong like we love being in this in this place i think everyone's pretty proud of it we feel Mm. like it's the biggest you know on launch day it was kind of like well this is actually day one after you know a year and a half of planning this is actually just day one of the yes. main work um, <laughs> but yeah I think it's um it's it's kind of it's really important to know what your community wants where they're at um and to try and focus around that so I think it's quite difficult to tell any other community how they should go about mm, it because it, yeah. every, only every community can decide that for themselves and what's already happening but yeah I mean ultimately the goal is I suppose to try and get your town or city to um it's carbon neutrality, isn't it? And that kind yeah. of depends on, on where you're already at and what level of behavioural change, community buy-in, that side of things is needed for it. But I don't think it can hurt any community to start building cohesion now through bringing social and environmental groups together because, you know, ultimately we're going to face a lot of challenges with a changing planet. And if we're starting to build community instead of getting sucked into these divisive culture wars that vested interests are always trying to drag us into, then we've at least got a chance of 
building, you know, mm. a transformation of how we work and live to adapt and build resilience to God knows what lies ahead, really. And that, that's really interesting. And, and you mentioned that right at the beginning, these different kind of almost silos of, of you know, and lots of different community groups. And I'm sure lots of people will relate to this around their towns and cities, that there are there are lots of people all with very similar aims. But there's almost a sort of competitiveness between them and, and you know, this sort of... Um, putting noses out of joint for sort of treading on people's toes and things like that. And and the the brilliant thing about what you guys are doing is that it's just brought everybody together with a with a common goal. Was that difficult to do or was everybody sort of get it and quite up for it straight away? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. We've we've certainly not got every group in the, in the town mm. involved. But I think we've got in in some capacity, we've certainly got a few dozen groups involved here. I think probably 50 upwards, something wow. like that involved in in some capacity. Um, some with that put displays on, some that come and use the space for for events, some that just sort of we consult with on various things, some that yeah yeah. So yeah, I mean it, it it can be difficult, but I think ultimately the way that we started approaching this is that the differences of that are between us aren't really the things to focus on here. There's there's one thing, regardless of who you are, what your allegiance to, to anything is, there's one thing that we all share in common, and that's that we're all part of the same community. And as a result of that, we're all likely to face the, the same consequences of the biodiversity crisis and climate breakdown. And for Guildford, that's obviously flooding as is an issue. We get, mm. We've got the riverway running through it, and we flood. I think we flooded, what, three times in the last yeah, couple yeah, of years? We're a commuter town and um, mm. something that's never really touched on is that um, our rail infrastructure is only really built to cope with uh, 40 degree heat. And obviously with 40 degree heat equates to about 60 degrees at uh, track temperature, apparently. Wow. So we're creeping up towards consistent, you know, high 30s at the moment. So at some point, does that mean our town's not going to be a commuter town anymore? What happens to all the people who, you know, rely on getting into work to, to do that or what have you? So problems that, you know, a lot of people don't even realise they're actually are actually lying ahead of us food as we've already touched on food with our areas of food poverty here food, food insecurity i think is a huge issue mm-hmm. um, that most people can get behind i think air pollution as well is something that can bring people together and guildford has sometimes registers the highest air pollution in england we've got wow. our- yeah the air pollution in guildford i just want to say is so awful i was literally walking to school say it like catches in your throat and it's, it's all these SUVs that are, you know, driving along. If they mm. were a country, I think, um, if SUVs were a country, I think I heard that they'd be like the, the third biggest, um, polluter country, uh, for like, uh, yeah, I think I've heard similar. And it's yeah. just, it's, that's dreadful. And if you think about like the implications that has, especially on children, mm. like the child asthma rates, like also, um, like it can cause lung cancer as well, the mm. amount of, and mm. diesel. I mean, that's the main one really, as well as obviously petrol. That's dreadful. But, um, yeah, it can just all these spiritual problems that it can cause. And that is so unethical. And I think that that's also something that's rarely ever touched on. But that's a direct impact onto all of us. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, a, and a lot of that is just like poor knowledge as well. Isn't yeah, it? Because exactly. with, with, um, with the air pollution thing, I think it's something like if you're sat in an idling car, the pollution inside the car is 10 times higher than yes. if you're just walking past. Almost nobody knows that. And I'm sure you wouldn't get people just sat around idling with their kid in the car if they, if they realised that, mm. obviously. But it's not just diesel either. Um, so yeah I think finding those things that everyone can buy into is pretty important and approaching it from the point of view that look we're all gonna to some extent we're all gonna share these same issues you know again it comes back to you know the 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 people in the lower income areas are likely to have a much worse time of it than Mm. than other people but ultimately we are sharing the same issues as a town that affect us all so I think that's that's pretty key to how you go about setting it up is is acknowledging that 
those are the people that you're going to be dealing with a problem with and you know like they like them or lump them i mean i'm not saying align with extreme fascists or whatever <laughs> don't get me wrong but there's got to be some some way that you can start finding those commonalities and think right well if we all care about our town and community then ultimately we need to start figuring out ways that we can start building a bit of a a bit of cohesion around a plan and i think there's a, there's some I think it was from the jump, actually, when they were doing the research on that. There's, I think there's um, sort of 15% of people who were pretty much already keen to get on board doing stuff. And then there's 35% of people who are really ready to do stuff, but just need mm. just need a pathway to do it. And then obviously the other 50% are a bit harder to reach. So I think there's a good way to start building a momentum around finding those common goals that lots of the community share and focus on that. And once momentum starts building hopefully it can start expanding. And don't get me wrong, like we are not pretending we've got all the answers or we've got this mapped out because we're still, as I say, less than yeah. eight weeks in. So we, we, we really aren't pretending that we're experts or we have all the answers to this. We're just trying to figure things out as we go. And I think that in a way really helps people get involved because so many of us have like imposter syndrome and fear mm. of failure that it's, it's quite nice. That I think we're community-led, none of us are paid. And um, although we have some great experts involved in what we're doing, we are really just community members really concerned about the future and trying mm. to trying to cobble something together out of out of what we can do really so um i think that's a, an important part of the messaging to say look this is not it's not a council thing it's mm. not a you know any one group's banner it's just all of us coming together to put the put the community in our future future of our young people ahead of everything else yeah so how do you guys as as um sort of volunteers as people who are on the board as the people who you know have probably been driving this avoid burnout when as you said these are all sort of unpaid roles and you're presumably trying to fit in paid work and Petra's got school and all those sorts of things around it because I'm sort of feeling pretty exhausted just talking to you guys and thinking oh yeah I would really love to do something like that but I honestly don't know if I've got the time or the energy to to be the you know to be driving it um yeah how are you finding that with chemistry (laughs) (laughs) no I mean it is it is exhausting um but then it's so rewarding. And I think it's also a great thing about Zero, actually, is that there's so many people and um, that it really ensures there isn't a duplication of effort. Mm-hmm. So the things that we do do impact directly on the community and you know on the climate and stuff. So, I mean, it, yeah, it is exhausting. But I also think that, um, I mean, I have had to <laughs> take a step back, like Ben said, with the old A-levels. You know, yeah, but, wow. Um, um, I I think yeah a great thing about zero is that you know, there is less duplication of effort and we have a big team of people who equally care so it's not like one person doing it and um, obviously there are main drivers but I think um, it's not one person doing it and it, all of us care a lot so mm. I, I think a lot of people do all this in their spare time anyway don't I don't, don't yes. think anybody has a particularly very good way of avoiding burnout um, <laughs> but I think we're all getting a bit better at T- taking the approach that if no one's going to do it it's not going to fall to one person it's just not going to get done basically yes. and depending how important it is we will try and get other people to do it um so we actually we had a good example with our community fridge launching next week we were teaming up with mid surrey community fridges on that and they're a great charity they're based in dorking um they save something i think they've got eight or nine fridges and they save over wow. eight tons of food waste um uh, from across Surrey every mm. week, which is what an amazing wow. impact they're making. Um, COVID affected them quite badly. Mm. And so they had to focus on the fridges they had um, instead of helping us. So we got to a point where we like, we're way under capacity. December was a bit of a nightmare because quite a few people either had personal issues or COVID or mm. were isolating because obviously things got pretty bad in terms of cases. 
And so we made the decision, look, we, we just can't focus on this. We really want it to happen. It's a, it's a big way, food waste, that we can contribute to trying to raise some awareness around even just better, even just better planning. I mean, food waste is so frustrating because it's entirely avoidable. If we could change mm. policies on aesthetics at supermarkets, if we could get more sort of farm-to-plate initiatives going um, and people just plan their meals better, it really could make a huge dent in any area's emissions. Um, so we were pretty gutted about that. And we took the decision, look, we really don't have the capacity to do this. And what was amazing is we started Zero to really be guided by the community and bring ideas in from people who wanted to do stuff and say, how can we get more support from across the groups to do this? And so we asked around our bank of volunteers and one person said, well, actually, I had been thinking about doing this um, a while ago. So maybe I could take the lead on it. And in about, I suppose, six weeks, something like that, she's managed to basically get us off the ground. We got quite lucky again going through a second round of funding. So we got a fridge, but she got us to the point where we're going to have non-perishable set up anyway as a starting yeah. point. Um, and so I think it's sometimes if you don't do it, someone will fill the space. Yes. That doesn't always happen. But ultimately, you know, it, it, sometimes you've just got to write things off if you can't do it. Because if, if everybody's burnt out and nothing's moving forward, it's worst case scenario if people start dropping out, isn't it? And we all, yeah. we all know that from past environmental movements. People do end up dropping out because... They're so exhausted, they're burnt out, and they, I suppose they get a bit resentful that so much work's falling on them, really. Yeah. So I think yeah, I think it's important to have a good structure for looking after yourself. And uh, one thing that we heard quite early is to disagree well, because not everyone's <laughs> always going to uh, agree on things, but it takes so much toll on you if you're arguing with people mm. that are supposed to be with the same intentions as you. So I think that's quite important. We've been not had too many arguments, have we? <laughs> upstairs one day don't we <laughs> yeah. um but yeah we're not I mean we've not had too too many falling outs I don't think because we do realize that what we're doing here feels like we're, we're making some progress basically um yeah, yeah again Even if we don't all go about it the same way I think um yeah but yeah again I don't think there's necessarily an answer to that because again it's one of those things that if if we knew how to do it we'd all be doing it yes. but we do have a well-being crew here who who sort of run events and that and I think we're it it sort of forces those of us who aren't sort of particularly well-being focused to maybe just slow down a bit and think about how we're actually yes. feeling because we're encouraging other people to do it as well but yeah it's tricky it's tricky balancing everything and um you mentioned earlier you know donut economics and for those people who haven't come across that term there's a brilliant book isn't there by Kate Rayworth who's um an economist and it's and it's kind of an alternative to capitalism that takes into account that this is my understanding of it having had the book on my shelf and not back around to reading it but you know taking into account the different actual sort of physical boundaries we have in terms of space and um, resources and all those kinds of things but and you're set up as a charity but will you have sort of income generating streams or are you sort of um, going forward is it going to be reliant on funding or how are you going to kind of because you kind of have to almost you have to buy into this cap- you have to be a part of the capitalist system don't you in order to, to kind of be doing what you're doing uh, well I, I suppose the main issue with our economic system as, as we've got it is that it focuses entirely on growth and that for me mm. the main problem is that we are always presented with this ridiculous false binary choice between effectively capitalism which is not even just capitalism let's be honest it's a really extreme form of capitalism that we're stuck in at the moment or communism or socialism basically that's the ridiculous narrative that obviously we get fed to make which conjures up obviously images of like you know the soviet union or what have you and like yeah labor camps and all this sort of thing it's Mm. it's obviously to just put the willies up here what have you um but that's not that's just a complete lack of human imagination it's a failure to say oh those those are the only two options and so what, what what the beauty about donut economics is it's not a rigid system it's what works for your for your area for your community basically and i think 
coupling that with research out of places like CUSP up at the Uni of Surrey, which is Centre for Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. And the folks up there work on lots of different things, but especially things like the care economy, um, which obviously could play a really big part part in how we shift to more Mm. uh, putting well-being of both humans and planet at the centre of of an economy instead of just growth. I think there's a lot of factors like this that can um, play into that. So it's not it's not really a case of there's this rigid set of rules. It's about building things that actually work for mm. your own town or city. And you, you only have to look at the, the empty high streets everywhere to, to see that, you know, what we've got at the moment is is not necessarily working for anybody. It's certainly not working for local communities where mm. half the high streets are empty. And so we, we like, we're, we're trying to like, I suppose, encourage people to use buildings for what we're doing here around the corner with there's an arts collaborative setting up in an old building uh, as an art gallery, which is pretty cool. So I think some of the empty high street space, if we're going to start looking at how we reform economies and really needs to start putting the things that are important to us Mm. at the centre of those economic models. So as I touched on care, um, creativity, community, all of those things that are you know a lot of the time free they're not they don't even cost anything Mm. but they're the things that give most of us joy in life um and on on the question of us being self-sustaining we've got a cafe we've got a vegan cafe here we've also got if you can see over my shoulder we've got a zero waste shop with delicious vegan pick and mix pick and mix is much tastier when it doesn't have rendered animals in it it turns out um Um, so we we do have we do have a couple of ways that we and obviously we hire the event space out so we 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 typically if something aligns with our charitable objectives we don't charge for the space because the point is to get people through the door Mm. see the work going on and to come and have conversations around the climate and environmental crisis things that align less or where people are charging for something will will Mm -hmm. charge them a fee because our uh, utility bills are ridiculous in this building um it really gobbles up I mean, most of the time people are in coats, Petra's in a coat right now. Yeah. But we've got a good excuse because we're a climate charity. So yeah. it's quite, <laughs> explain why it's cold. Um, so we've got a few sort of um, self-funding um, streams. We have donation tap pads for events to, oh, and we okay. just ask people, look, just help us keep the lights on or what have you. So we hope to be self-sustaining and we're doing okay at the moment, I think. Um, but obviously the more funding we get, the better really. And I think for um, specific projects, for anyone thinking about doing this, it's much easier to raise for specific projects than it right. is for, for the overarching okay. hub, I think. So things like vertical farming on food security, food waste, um, mm. all that side of things are, are easier to find a funder who will match up to it because they know exactly what it is. Whereas when it's more of an intangible yes. concept around the overarching project is a bit harder. So I think a, a really key part is finding people who ha- who can tr- contribute some skills either in renovation or mm. volunteering, volunteer management and um, tech and it that was a big yeah. one if we hadn't had dave one of our trustees we Ooh, wouldn't dave, <laughs> we wouldn't we wouldn't have had anywhere close to the amount of cool stuff that we've got yes. in here um even like you know setting up all the tills and things like that mm. is an absolute lifesaver of stuff that we would have had to go through a ton of youtube videos and yes yeah a week later probably yeah. smashed the thing on the floor Still got it wrong, yeah yeah, whereas he just loves it. That's pretty much wow. what he lives for. That and train spotting, I think. <laughs> he's not going to be happy when he hears this. Um, but yeah, so he's been, he's been amazing with stuff like that. So if you can find people who have got some um, yes. knowledge on that side of things, then yeah, it makes it a lot easier to get things off the ground. And as a charity, do you do you benefit from um, sort of business rates, exemptions and and that kind of thing? Yeah, so a charity gets mandatory 80% business rates. So it's a really good way to approach uh, owners of empty buildings because obviously if they are if they've got an empty building sitting on your high street, they're they're paying potentially tens mm. of thousands, maybe even more, you know, maybe in the hundreds of thousands for a really big building in business rates. 
Um, and obviously, if you move there in there as a charity, you're exempt and their building is, is full. They stop paying all those business rates. So it's kind of like a profit for them. But not only that, if you kit, kit it out on a, you know, a meanwhile lease or a pairing lease, you're suddenly making empty and pretty potentially nasty looking building into something that's more of a vibrant hub. And it makes it a much more attractive um, prospect for people who might be looking to lease it in the long term. So it helps, you know, it helps your council as well. It helps your local business improvement district. Because effectively, you're potentially attracting more clients back into mm. those empty buildings by making it not just, you know, a very like sterile environment where people walk in to look at it. You're actually giving a bit of an idea on it as you're fixing up some of the main problems that you can see. Um, Does so, that yeah, mean, all- though, that, that you're on a kind of, you know, at any minute they could say... Off, we've got someone offering us full rent off you go sort of well so in our in our case we got a two-year um, oh, two-year lease but with break clauses so we always knew that would be the case that we would have to move at some point we really hope that we can last last out because obviously we put we, we put about eight weeks mm. worth of refurb into this place and I mean it's kind of a second home to a lot of us it's now yeah I mean, you know, and it's big as well. So I don't think there's that yes. many companies that could take it all, all of it on, really. So, I mean, nobody necessarily wants a big, it doesn't bring that much value to just have another big faceless chain back in your mm-hmm. community. Whereas doing something like this really is hopefully helping to build the community cohesion yes, needed definitely. moving forward. So it, it definitely brings some aspects like that in. So we always knew that potentially there'll be a situation where we have to move. So we've kitted it out so that we can take everything apart quite easily and move mm. it if we need to. Fingers crossed and touch wood and whatever else we don't need to and because we would be gutted but again the the way that we look at it is it's you know zero is about much much more than just the building it's about this community-led climate action plan and if we end up you know without a a home then we'll figure out a way to keep that going but we would don't get me wrong we'd be absolutely gutted but it is it's a realistic situation at some point so um yeah as a charity you you, what you need to do for this is look at what your council will grant you because it's down to the council. So 80% is mandatory um, for charities, but it's not necessarily the case that all um, your alternatives to setting up as a, a charity, which is a charitable and incorporated organisation, is setting up as a CIC, mm. which is a community interest company. Not all councils will grant relief to, to a CIC. Oh, okay, yeah, but you yeah. need to look at that when you're thinking about how to go about it. And then the 80% is mandatory for charities there's a discretionary extra 20%. So you can end up getting 100% relate, oh, wow. uh, relief. Yeah. In our case, it's whether you align with the uh, the local council's vision. And our, our GBC, Guildford Borough Council, has nine areas in their vision. And we, uh, arguably, we align with all nine of them, but very strongly with seven. So I think, and I think doing this for the betterment of the of the town's, town or city's yeah. future is pretty much likely to, I think, get that, get that 100% discount because... It's a good thing for any town, really, I think, yeah. to start this sort of thing off and start trying to get ahead of the crisis. We've seen what's happened over the last couple of years when you're always on the back foot trying to deal with crises. It's it's a disaster, really. So there's, there's you know, with COVID, there's at least you know there's going to be a point where things will start getting back to normal. But that's not the case with um, with climate stuff. You, you know, there's, there's no end point in sight once things start happening, once, start, once tipping points start get triggering. Mm-hmm. There's not, we can't think, oh, it'll be back to normal in a couple of years. Things will get significantly worse from that from that initial escalation. So yeah. it's really important, I think, to get on the front foot and start figuring out how we adapt to that and how we build resilience and self-sufficiency because if and when supply chains collapse and, you know, how are we going to feed ourselves, yeah. um, at, even at the most basic level, what, what's the plan for that? And I don't mm-hmm. think anybody massively has one at the moment. So starting to build out community food security strategies of how we can build self-sufficiency, I think is massively important, really. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, can't, I couldn't see many councils rejecting people on the basis of, of, of what we're doing here. 
oh god I don't know though my <laughs> the, the battles I've been having with my local council <laughs> Um, so people listening, I'm really hoping that people are listening and, and really kind of fired up and enthusiastic and thinking, wow, this is something I'd love to sort of try and replicate. Are there sort of, I'm sure you get asked this sort of thing all the time and it's a, it's probably an impossible question to answer, but like what's, what's a place to start? What's an action that people can go out and do straight away to move them a step closer? Um, what do you think? I would say probably start building your network, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say build, building the network of people and making sure you have a team of people with different skill sets. Mm. So he's having loads of people who are good at one thing um, and people who are like real doers and who um, get stuff done as well, I think is a really important. Yeah, no, I, well, I mean, again, if you if you end up not being able to ever get a building, then that network can still make a, yes. a lot of a lot of difference. So, yeah, it, don't get me wrong. It's a lot of work. We got pretty lucky. I'm self-employed, so I took quite a lot of time off to focus on this. Um, so, yeah. Um, we had um, someone who had, wanted a bit of a break from their what their career was to have a career change and wanted to take a few months off. So they've effectively been in here pretty much nonstop wow, and have been yeah. basically like help us kept it open the whole time. So he's been an amazing addition. He got properly chucked in at the deep end, real baptism of fire. <laughs> um, and then we've got someone who acts as what we call a custodian for the building now who sort of sorts it out. They come in three times a week. Um, they were having a break as well. Um, so, and then a really good bank of volunteers. But it, it just even just dealing with the building, if you've mm. got a big building like we have, can be a, like one person's job. The tech stuff can be one person's job. Refurbing is mm. a lot of weeks potentially to get stuff kitted out. Um, so, I think that's um, yeah, as Petra said, a, a varied range of people. But you need a lot of people. Um, we've had, um, I think, probably twelve or thirteen different. Uh, groups of people from towns and cities across the country come and visit yeah, us. That, uh, yeah. is, we even have people from Totnes come, which is um, oh, wow. you know, Totnes start looking to, to Surrey and Guildford for um, how they're doing stuff on environment. I think we're definitely taking a step in the right direction. Oh um, yeah, Totnes has say, been sort of leading the way for a long time, haven't they? Yeah, so, they, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think you know it, it's good. It's nice to know that people think, oh, that's actually you know people are impressed enough to think this mm. could make a difference. I think it's re- it really sort of rewards us. I think, and that helps a lot with the managing the sort of exhaustion and burnout as well as to know that it is making enough of a difference that people are interested to come and see mm. how we got this off the ground so uh, what i would say is we're, we're here anytime people want to sort of message um to get advice there's the whole network as i say of loosely affiliated groups they've all got you know different we in so in surrey we've got um talking tree and stains which um is about half an hour from here we've got a group in our neighboring town called uh what next godalming who have got mm. a building Oh, yeah. um, we've got um Dorking Climate Emergency did a pop-up style thing in October, I think, um, and f- had that for one or two months. And then over in Elmbridge, they're doing this sort of uh, eco hub thing that's mostly focused around community growing. So there's different ways to do it. Yeah. But, I mean, we've got five things happening even our, in our own county. So um yeah, there's 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 support out there for, for getting things off the ground and climate emergency centers network are offering a, a sort of framework of how to do some of these things we've got an event if people are interested we're going to live stream an event the event that we're holding on the 10th of february in the evening and that we're doing with surrey climate commission as a sort of and petra sits on surrey climate commission as well and we're sort of trying to give them ways that they can get past you know just having meetings to actually start supporting things that are happening and making a difference so we're going to set that up and um, uh, I've invited the other um, similar hubs across Surrey to come and be a panel on that to chat. And we're going to discuss, discuss ways that councils can support because obviously the way that you go to think about immediately is through funding. Mm-hmm. Councils are obviously pretty stretched at the moment, but 
may potentially do have um, enough cash to employ someone who could be a liaison for this sort of thing, a community engagement lead, who could have expertise in setting up charities, on making funding bids, all the mm-hmm. stuff that so many people have never done before yes. that feel immensely overwhelming to try and take on and yeah, can yeah, often yeah. take a lot of time for minimal return, like fundraising. Yes is soul destroying um and you it takes hours to do a bid and you you know you might not even get through the first phase Mm, so mm. all that side of things if there's ways that councils can even just support in that i think it's really important so we're having that meeting 10th of february we're going to try and live stream it as well so anyone around the country can hopefully watch it um and just sharing knowledge i think is between communities is is the main thing building your own community but then working with other communities to share ideas i think is just as important because as I say, if we can all try all different things and learn from each other's successes and failures, it helps us get closer to that goal of, you know, really reaching a level where we're not destroying the planet through our own through our own actions, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, build build that network, I think, is, is really your first step and your key step for all of it. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm aware you've got another meeting to go to, Ben. Um, and thank you, Petra. Um, and thank you both for all the work that you're doing. It just it's so inspiring. And so and I really think that this will have, um, you know, really inspired a lot of people to to get on because, um, you know, there is that spectrum, isn't there, of sort of individual action, which is really important. But then when individuals come together as a community, we can see sort of bigger action and, and quicker as well. And this is really sort of empowering and facilitating that as well. So I think it's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. You're very thank welcome. You. Nice. been listening to Sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, Do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time.